Yeah, what's up, fools? This is the QTR Podcast. Today's September 25th, 2020. Welcome to the show. This podcast is brought to you exclusively by my patrons. Patrons are people that sign up and donate a monthly recurring sum to help support the podcast. Love you, people. I want to shout out my patrons. I'm going to give you a couple rules for the podcast, and we're going to get on with the damn show. First and foremost, my exclusive gold and silver providers over at JM Bullion. I'm probably going to be putting in another order over the next week, given the fact that spot gold and silver prices have come back down again and I think it's an inevitability that they're going to go higher but again I am not an investment advisor and I live in a 1200 square foot condo so I'm obviously not doing that well you might not want to listen to my advice regardless if gold and silver interests you check out my dear friends over at JM Bullion you can shoot them an email QTR podcast listeners have their own saleswoman over there Kathy at jmbullion.com that's k-a-t-h-y at jmbullion.com she'll give you five dollars off your order and she'll give you free shipping if you ask nicely and you tell her that this is the best podcast in history and they should never stop donating to it that's what you have to include in the email just Sing my praises, and then at the very, very bottom in size 9 font, you can put your order, whatever it is that you want. JM Bullion's been in business for a decade now, and they've done over $3 billion in sales. Very reputable. They turn my orders around very quickly. I like doing business with them. So give my friends over at JM Bullion a play. Links are in the podcast description. This podcast also brought to you by my friends over at the Trader's Path, my favorite investment community the traders path started by my homeboy pete hedgetus who got tired of the nonsense and bullshit any trading service that you see on youtube by the way that has a youtube ad is mostly bullshit i just want to say that god i'm fucking sick of watching those things too every time i pull up a youtube video you know it's late at night on a friday or a saturday and i'm stoned and i'm trying to watch somebody do like a super mario brothers 3 speed run or something on youtube and I got to deal with, hi, I'm Sam Barker from The Motley Fool. Or I've got three strategies, one trade, one time a day, one day a month, one month a year, to instantly ten times your net worth. It's like, shut the fuck up. Jesus Christ. Pete, I guess, uh, felt similarly situated because he thought many of these day trading services were out to just take his money or... Uh, maybe he was being front run. I don't know what his beef was, but he said, fuck it, I'm starting my own trading service. And that is how we got the trader's path, which gives all kinds of goodies. You get a live stream, you get a daily watch list from Pete. You can get communication with Pete on a daily basis. They trade red markets, green markets, stocks, options, and it's a nice community of people. And it's run by an honest guy that I am happy to recommend. Pete will give you a free trial or anything you want if you tell him you listen to the QTR podcast and you heard him there. I've got a special deal worked out with him where you guys can just get whatever the hell you want. So reach out to Pete and tell him I sent you. This podcast also brought to you by my homeboy Sang Lucci and the Sang Lucci Steam Room, one of my favorite pieces of software and really the original piece of software that was out there tracking unusual options activity in markets before anybody was doing it about 10 years ago sang lucci and wall street jesus were starting up the steam room which tracked tape and tracked options flow these guys are masters at reading where the big money is going in the market and when you track that down a lot of times you can find out where the underlying equities are going to go which can be very lucrative business. Nobody was doing it before Lucci and Wall Street Jesus. These guys coined the term sweepers. You hear call sweepers, put sweepers. These guys were the OGs. They were the first to do it. 
And it's a beautiful piece of software that they're currently, uh, they've been updating for like 10 years now. It does all kinds of wonderful things. Uh, in addition to unusual options activity, it's more than just what you would get on an unusual options activity piece of software that most places are offering. Reach out to Lucci. He'll give you a free trial. Tell him I sent you. Uh, no credit card, no nonsense, no bullshit. Lucci will get you hooked up with a trial, and uh, you can check out the Steam Room. So see for yourself firsthand that it doesn't suck. Lucci also offers the 3LT playbook, which are the three rules that he used to become a seven-figure trader, and his master course, which is a financial education for people that don't want to deal with stuffy guys in bow ties that play croquet and squash on the weekends. So, link to all the Lucci shit also in my podcast description. Check it out. Give them a play. This podcast is also brought to you by my friends over at Corvus Gold. My friends at Investors Underground and Traders for a Cause, Ken R., Chris Bede, Nicholas Parks, my homeboy Matthew Zimmer, dry shipping analyst Jay Minsmeyer. Got to check them out, see what's going on in dry shipping. I see those stocks have been getting pasted again. Russ Valenti, Crichton Titus is in the house. I want to shout out some of my newest patrons like Brett that just signed up two days ago. Thank you, my brother Andrew Mitchell. I see you, my friend Eric Reynolds and Jim Durkin. I appreciate you guys signing up. Helping out the cause here. I don't really know what my cause is, but if I find out, I'll get back to you. Scott Hagadone or Hagadoni, whatever your name is, I appreciate you. Hayden and Jim Fahey, thank you. Wayne Barger, Billy B is in the house. What's up, Billy B? I appreciate you, my brother, coming through. My friend Gil Herm is in the house. Macro Degenerate Mitch and John Knott. My homeboy Raymond Carota, my neighbor. I want to shout out some people that have been patrons for a minute too, like David Hunt and James Malloy. 10 Strike Racing is still in the house supporting the QTR podcast. I don't know why, but you are. I appreciate it. Casey Ponder, what's up? Mark Wicker, haven't forgotten you at all. And finally, how about Lisa Hyatt, my friend Mason Bustle, and Daniel Rust, and Brainerd Ferguson? What's up? This podcast has a three-drink minimum. It's Friday. It's fucking happy hour. I don't really know what you're doing with your life, but if you haven't taken three to the face at this point, you better get on that shit quick because I know my guest is also going to be drinking heavily at this point in the evening. Uh, Actually, when I tried to book this podcast yesterday, she wanted to make sure that it could be done on time where she was allowed to drink wine. So I was like, all right, I'm okay with that. I'm not a registered investment advisor. I'm not. I hold no licenses, no registrations. None of this is financial advice. Please consult your financial advisor before you do anything. Find a fucking stuffy looking guy with Coke bottle glasses that works in a local Edward Jones office and has a CFP next to his name. There's a test anybody could fucking take with their eyes closed. Regardless, uh, find yourself a real financial advisor because I am not one. And with that being said, I am excited to get started. All right, stoked to have with me today, Danielle DiMartino Booth. Danielle is the CEO and Chief Strategist for Quill Intelligence, LLC. She founded Quill Intelligence in 2018, and she's just a general badass. Most of you guys know who she is uh, already. I'm going to truncate that introduction, but she's all over everywhere, and uh, just a general badass. How are you today, Danielle? Well, I'm being badass. I can tell you that much. I'm great. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm doing great. I know it was a very busy day for you, and it was a busy day for me as well. So we're kind of, uh, you know, meeting up here at the end of the week, Friday happy hour. We can both take a deep breath and just know that this is hopefully our last uh, obligation for the week. Is that right? This is my last obligation for the week, and but, but you're you, so this doesn't suck near as much as other things would. And 
Plus, you know, I, I, I did something good today. I, I spoke for charity to raise money for children in Lebanon. So, um, so, you know, the next one, two, three interviews in between, you know, at least I did something good for the world. This is your fourth interview of the fifth. day? Fifth. Fifth interview. Good. Yeah. Well, hopefully you got all of your political correctness and boilerplate lines out of your system. And now you're just ready to, you know, slum it with me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I am drinking a Bud Light that I've had in the fridge, I want to say for a year. I mean, it's been a long time. It's been sitting back there and I'm like, nope. Nope, nope. And today I was like, yes, yes, yes. You only have one. I just had. I just took my first sip. I, I've been talking the whole time. No, I mean, you only have one Bud Light. I mean, what's going to happen? Usually, like we were just talking off the air. We were not really. Neither of us are really like super heavy into beer. But like, if I have one, I, I want another one. Well, I do have a backup uh, Michelob Ultra that I grabbed before getting on the phone with you. So here we ah. are. Did you ever notice it takes a lot of those to get a buzz? Like you could drink like. 20 of those and be fine. Yeah, I mean, why would you know, just be so much easier you to go straight to the crack cocaine. I'm kidding. <laughs> um, You're guaranteed a buzz. It's, exactly. Yeah. And it's instantaneous from what I've heard. <laughs> All right. So, there Danielle, are certain people who are not designed for drugs, that would be me. Mm-hmm. I, I, if, if I walk down the street and smell marijuana, I like go into convulsions and need to vomit. It's, oh, well, that's probably a good thing. Is that thing. bad, huh? Oh, it's awful. Did you ever try smoking? No, no, no. It literally, I'm not. I'm not exaggerating. It 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 makes me instantaneously nauseous. So you, but you never tried smoking it. Just on it, you never tried going like full force gale into it. Uh, no, that would not be me. Even though I've I've I did have other type of smoking um, habits in my past life in New York. What happened? Do you want to share? What happened? Yeah. I don't know. I I got I got smart. I read the label on the outside and I went, oh. Oh, so you were a cigarette smoker? Yes. What was your What was your brand? I was just I, I was a Marlboro Lights girl. I mean, this is nobody knows this. I can't be saying this. Move on, next subject. Well, wait, you know, that's the whole point. You get to the fifth interview of the day. Look, everybody wants to hear, you know, what you think about the Fed. They can go back to the other four, but people want to you know, know what brand of, those, of cigarettes you were smoking when you were in New York. I was one of those, you know, social. You know, it's it, it was it was the thing to do. It was the '90s. What do you want, anyways? Yeah, Marlboro Lights were like, that was like the brand du jour, too, in like the late 90s, early 2000s. That, and I remember when I was in college, everybody would smoke Marlboro Lights. Marlboro Ultra Lights also, too, was the other one. If you were a quote-unquote a social smoker, right, like you're saying. Yeah, it was just what we did. I mean, hell, Wall Street was quite quite the place to be during the internet balloon. <laughs> <laughs> Were you a beer? But now we have both. It's so exciting. We have like 1999 and we have 2000 and it's together and it's so awesome because this is like the biggest fireworks display ever on Wall Street. Well, what do you make of it in comparison? I mean, what do you make of what's going on now in tech stocks in comparison to what happened in the 90s? Well, you know how I gauge what's going on in tech stocks is you have to gauge it by how defensive um, the tech analysts are. And they're really, really, really defensive. I'm like, let me get this straight now. We're going to go off of pro forma 2030 (laughs) estimates. Got it. I got it. You know what? Then the stock price makes perfect sense. Right. For a company that has shown shown no revenue growth over the last trailing 12-month period, right? Yeah. And and 
that's, you know, that's, that's great. I mean, you ask Mrs. Lincoln how the play ended. That was great too. So. Yeah. I think that is, there is a, uh, there's a serious kind of, I don't know what you want to call it, but a serious kind of uh, euphoria that is building in tech stocks. But I also thought that what was really interesting was SoftBank basically admitted to coming out and manipulating the market. I mean, and actually there was a headline a couple of weeks after SoftBank, you know, broke the news or the news was broken that SoftBank was in there just basically buying options um, to drive the market up that Goldman Sachs was doing the same thing too. They made a hundred million dollars trading Tesla options. And then you're just wondering like, wow, how much of the last six months was just a gamma squeeze, right? Well, that's the thing. It's, it's, this is, I mean, as much as we want to say, you know, all hail Dave Portnoy, this is more than retail investors. You don't, you don't, you don't have these kinds of moves without it. I mean, look at the volatility that we've had in the stock market. There was a 500 point swing in the Dow yesterday. Uh, and you don't have that unless you've got some big swing in money out there. Yeah, even I, I think Chano said, because somebody was saying a couple months ago, oh, the Tesla move is being catalyzed by retail traders. And I think Chano said, it may not be him, but he said, you know, with given the amount of volume and the price of the stock, you really have to have some major money. You know, this is not a bunch of peckerheads on their Robinhood accounts buying five shares at a time or buying five option contracts at a time, right? Yeah, it is. Uh, and that's the thing. For market veterans, and, and you look at the smart money index, and insiders are selling at the fastest pace since 2012, you're like, no, 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 no. This, this is, these are massive, massive program trading. Massive. These are huge desk moves. You got to wonder, like, these are block trades. Who who holds the bag at the end of the day on all these? It's a really good question. Not me. You know, like, but like, seriously, if 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 the run up was this giant gamma squeeze, and now we're having an unwind to the downside, who who winds up holding the bag? Is it the market makers? Is it the is it the option contract writers? Like, who's who's losing on the deal? Is That's it, a good question. Is it retail? Well, it's always retail, right? I mean, now you're reading stories that pensions are playing catch up and loading up on stocks. And you're like, that's so awesome. We're going to take grandma to Vegas. Just awesome. I mean, it's it, it typically is the investor who can stand to lose the least, right? I mean, we forget back in the day that Goldman Sachs was betting against subprime while selling it out the front door. Yeah, and, it, and those losses always wind up on the backs of the people that can least afford it, like you said. And that's that's exactly what we're seeing with the COVID relief and the COVID stimulus too, is all of this. Oh, but look, look at what we're seeing. And I've got a Bloomberg column that hit the terminal today. Look, the FHA is handing out mortgages like candy to low-income buyers who are buying into to nosebleed level home prices, 3.5% down payment. Mortgages. At the same time, you've got Fannie and Freddie that have lost their friggin' minds. They're doing automated appraisal waivers for cash out refinancings. Hundred billion dollars of cash out refinancings in the past six months. And people are like, "Golly, look at this! The housing market's awesome." And I'm like, "Well, it should be awesome with with Papa Powell buying every friggin' mortgage in sight." When he started buying, he was buying more than what the production was. So people are like, it's a sign that the economy is strong. And I'm like, no, it's not. It's a sign that Fannie and Freddie have gone nuts and that FHA lending is crazy and that rich people are getting the hell out of the city. 
So, but the, oh, only one of the three is not going to be screwed. Yeah. So, because you're going to have these low-income buyers who are going to be upside down on their mortgages, who are going to lose their homes, and who are going to be really, really pissed off because they have to rebuild their credit for six years, and there's going to be resentment, and we could even see riots in the streets of America. Well, we're oh, already wait. seeing, yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, do you think that this leads to another housing crisis? Like, sooner than the last, like, I don't know what the last cycle was in the housing crisis, 30 years or whatever? I mean, do you think that this one it, accelerates you know, that? No, it, it won't because there's over $30 trillion of home equity. So um, what it will do is kind of kind of what you're seeing right now, uh, you know, Colony Capital announces that it's, a, that it's getting rid of seven hotel portfolios. Um, you will see the first buyer advantage. Um, so plan on that. You're going to see people with home equity who see the writing on the wall. They're going to be like, okay, the CARES Act allows for 12 months of forbearance. And so, okay, I better sell, you know, before all of that housing supply comes onto the market. And God help us if the stock market doesn't hang in there. Because if it doesn't, you know, all the baby boomers are going to be like, okay, now where's my wealth? Oh, wait, I've got all this equity piled up in my home. I'll just get it. And now I can retire on that. So it works. You have an orderly unwind in the housing market as long as only a few people sell at a time. The shit hits the fan if it's everybody who needs to sell at the time going, oh, I better get out of this. But just watch what you're seeing in the hotel sector because we'll see something parallel happen in residential real estate. Yeah, and the stock market is really the last kind of beacon of I don't know what you want to call it, beacon of wealth. It's really the last thing that anybody is just grasping onto. It's like, yeah, all right. Well, we've, you know, people, all these people are out of work and the economy is grinding to a halt and it's the, the effects have been devastating, but at least the 401k is hanging in there. You know, at least the stock market is holding up. It's like, fuck, if that goes it's going to be very real because it's already very real for a lot of people. But there's also, I think, a group of people that are saying to themselves and think, OK, because the market's holding up like this isn't really that bad of a depression. But if that goes, it's like all hell breaks loose. Yeah. I mean, because you think about how many institutions that could bring down. And, and like you mentioned before, right, pension funds that are trying to make these carry trades and take it on debt to to buy stocks still. And uh, then you see some real problems because then you have like personal consumer deleveraging, right? That happens. That is what we look. People do not appreciate. It's like it's like if I can't see it, it, it's not happening. But, you know, there is no household credit cycle going on right now. Right. Sorry. It's been put on ice. So people are like, so what if FHA delinquencies are at 15%, the highest since 1979 when they started keeping records? That's just on paper. And I'm like, well, no, actually, no, it's not. Those, at some point, and there is a running theory right now, there is a running theory on Twitter that the lenders are going to permanently allow forbearance. And I'm like, I don't think that's how banking works. I don't. <laughs> I might have to go crack open my textbook but I don't remember reading about never getting paid paid back. I, I I don't I don't know that the word indefinitely has was ever in any of my textbooks. Right. But but that is the running theory. 
that that there that there's going to be stimulus legislation passed after the election that lets everybody stay in their homes. And I'm like, is anybody going to raise their hand for the 48% of U.S. landlords who are small business owners who are getting deep fried? Is anybody is anybody going to speak up for the for the landlords? Well, it's because you have all these idiots that just think, oh, you know, all landlords are these big, rich, fat cats, you know, that are putting up multi-million dollar commercial properties every day. And, you know, the landlords are the bad guy. It's like, hey, my best friend, his parents, okay, they own a very small uh, diner and they have like a condo or two that they get income from. And that's like their retirement you know, they're landlords. Landlords are oh, yeah. just regular people. You know, That's when I right. move out of my condo, I might rent it. I'll be a landlord, right? They're, they're not these, you know, super ultra wealthy, but you have all these idiots that think that, oh, well, they can just bear the brunt of it, right? Allow us to just remove this economic law. Oh, look, my my, my, my cousin-in-law, he was able to, to, to pursue the career of his dreams and work at a, at a not-for-profit and work for pennies, but he slowly bought up homes around New Haven and fixed them up himself with his own hands and rented them out, and that's how he could afford to have his not-for-profit career. Right. Well, how's that working out? And meanwhile, back at the ranch, what nobody wants to tell you about the fat cat landlords, by the way, is the ones that, that do exist, those huge institutional investors that have bought thousands of home, homes up, that for some reason the Wall Street Journal keeps like lauding, like these are the best people in the world. They're going to allow people who are going to be foreclosed on to sell their homes to them and then lease them back and never have to move. And I'm like, oh, it's the American dream. Why did I think of that? So, But they're quietly evicting people in violation of Trump's memoranda, whatever the hell, whatever he signs every other weekend, that, that, that gave CDC funding to cover all rent evictions. But guess what? The big, huge institutional investors are quietly pushing through with evictions. How do you like that? Yeah, well, I don't blame them. You know? Well, they've got, they've got shareholders. Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of and the nobody, day. And nobody in Washington, D.C. is going to stop them. Washington DC is not going to stop some. You really think he's somebody's going to go knocking on Steve Schwartzman's door no. and say you're breaking the law, Mr. Schwartzman? And he he would say, I I give you a lot of money. That that's why I pay people on on the hill. That so so you know it's called quid pro quo. Get over it. Move on. No, nobody's going to say anything. It's just the government sticking their nose in and trying to rig another market. They've already rigged the stock market. Now they're going to try and rig the real estate market. Soon there won't be anything left for them to rig. You know. And meanwhile, by the way, the average consumer is paying like something like 24% on their credit cards or something, right? <laughs> Rates are... Oh, it is just... It's like every single time Powell says... You know, low borrowing costs benefit the household sector. I'm like, what planet do you live? You gotta get, you gotta break free of the Chevy Chase Country Club occasionally and come down <laughs> on the planet Earth with the rest of us. I, it's, it's like, are you kidding me? Do you really, do you not think that lenders base what they're going to rates, lending rates based on credit quality? And by the way, how's your QE working out? Because it's, it's pumping a lot into the stock market, but it's doing nothing for C&I lending. So you've got that in contraction. 
So, yeah, it's called a broken transmission mechanism. Yeah, and it feels like if you wanted to address something, like, why wouldn't you start there? If you wanted to give households some extra liquidity and give them a break, you know, then you really go after the fat cats and say, all right, well, you know, you can't pay more than 9% interest on a credit card. And, like, how much would that amount to? But instead, you know... Because that would disproportionately affect the large institutions. There's not a lot of regular, everyday small business owners that are going out and issuing tons of credit, um, especially not at those rates. But, you know, JP Morgan can pay you five basis points on a savings account and charge you 23% interest on a credit card. Like, that's perverse. Right. You that, almost you you just you, you almost feel sorry for them that the only thing the Fed is doing is doing QE through their desks and making sure that the bond market's wide open so they get gigantic investment banking fees. I mean, you, you almost feel sorry for the banks. Yeah, almost. <laughs> and it's just you know, look, I, I own banking stocks too because it's just to me seems just obvious that the Fed is just going to allow them to do whatever they want and is going to backstop them, you know, until we have the big existential crisis, whenever that is, the, the, the currency crisis. But until then, I mean, they, I feel like these large banks are just capitalized with as much money as they need whenever they need it. You know, the stress tests are just, they're a sham, right? Oh, please. I mean, look, you've got, it kind of curls, oh, it just it makes my it, it, it makes my hair stand up on its ends to say that European regulators are being harder on banks by not allowing them to pay dividends, period. And, you know, we've set like a little deadline on it. You know, just just hold off for just a little while and then you then you can go back. I mean, anyways, it, these things make my head explode. They just do. And the reverence in the media the reverence I, – I know you were going to ask me about that, weren't you? The reverence in the media for the Fed. I, I mean, it's the number of articles that were written about a regime change because they, they shifted from symmetric to average inflation targeting. And it was like, this is huge. It's just – this is monumental. This is the biggest thing that the Fed has done in generations. I'm like – they just told you that in 2023 that their target, that they're not going to hit their target, that it's going to be 1.7%. They put it right there in writing. And yet, we're supposed to believe that they're going to let inflation run hot. I mean, it is just, <laughs> it, it boggles the mind. And they're buying up the whole friggin' tips market, trying to create this inflation narrative and raise inflation expectations. I'm like... Uh, the Fed's balance sheet's a matter of public record, uh, and you don't generate inflation when you've got 26 million Americans collecting unemployment benefits. It doesn't work that way. Yeah, do you think that QE is actually deflationary? There was an article on that like six months ago on Zero Hedge that I was reading, and they were actually saying that at some point it becomes deflationary. At some point they're they're getting like 180 degree counterintuitive by the way that they think that they're stoking inflation. <laughs> they, you want to know what's going to happen with the Fed and inflation? Yes, I do. And so, so are my listeners. Right, <laughs> so right now, the when when Powell was at his press conference, he said, "Hold on, I need to I need to take a sip real quick because I just." Oh. Mm. 
Okay, much better. When Powell was at his press conference, he said, look, we had interest rates pinned to the zero bound for seven years and didn't create a bubble. See? I'm like, uh, okay, did you just really say that out loud? But he said seven years. So I think that they think that they can hold them down for 10 years easily. But the problem is if you're talking about QE and right, the only reason he's talking about the length of time they were at the zero bound is the zero bound is also associated with quantitative easing. Right. So if he believes that theoretically we can walk down this lovely road for another 10 years and that the bond market's going to stay quiet and behave for that long, he has got another thing coming and it'll be, their asses will be on fire. Inflation will be so hot. They won't need to be talking about, <laughs> but, but, but well, I misphrase, stagflation is what they're going to be dealing with. And I mean, you know, I, some of my first memories were sitting in a line to fill up the car with gas with my parents when gas was being rationed in the 70s. I mean, the misery index. When was the last time you heard anybody say the misery index when you add inflation to unemployment? Because that's the worst of all worlds. But the Fed right now thinks that because they got through this massive period of quantitative easing and nothing came back to bite them, that they'll be able to go from $30 trillion to $60 trillion of debt with no problem in the world and that the rest of the world is just going to sit on back and say, go for it. Will we have deflation first? Yes. We're actually already having disinflation now, today, because we're seeing rents come down. But the question is, Will will Jay Powell have his ten years in Fairyland? I don't think so. <laughs> I don't think so. I think we eventually have rising interest rates dictated by the market. I think there's an equally probable chance that we might get all the way down close to zero again on the ten year. The market was up three hundred and fifty eight points and the ten year the yield was down. So the the market's not buying it. Yeah, and that's been that's how it's been going, right? That's how the two have traded kind of in tandem for a while now. Explain to my listeners that don't really know too much about how the bond market could call bullshit on these low rates, what that type of disaster would look like. Because essentially what you're saying is the bond market is going to call bullshit on the Fed eventually here. They don't have three more years to uh, you know, keep rates this low. What does that look like? And, and, and maybe explain it in a way that somebody that doesn't understand bonds exceptionally well would understand. So, first of all, Treasury inflation protected securities. They're what you buy if you're worried that inflation is going to increase. It's like buying a Treasury bond, but it's protected against the scourge of inflation. So, in order to inflate the, the, the market's perception of inflation expectations, the Fed has been pouring money down the throat of the tips market. At the same time, nominal bond yields, the ones you look at on, on the bottom of the screen, have been coming down. They have been giving Powell the Heisman because of the massive deflationary pressures building up in the economy especially as we flirt with the prospect of no stimulus prior to the election. So, and that's what we're used to. We are used to, since 1981, falling bond yields. 
but we've never pushed the envelope this far. We we didn't have deficit spending at this level ever. Hell, the New Deal, it was like 7% right. of GDP, FDR time. And right now, it's three times that level, and we're saying that we can run five, six trillion dollar deficits for years to come. The Fed's going to monetize it directly and the rest of the world's going to sit back and be fine with it. Because unlike Japan, which has been in, de in a deflationary funk for three decades, unlike Japan, we don't own all of our treasuries. The rest of the world owns a lot of our treasuries. About a third of U.S. treasuries are owned by foreign investors. So if, if there's major pushback in the market, or if investors begin to say, you know what, they, I don't, I don't know about full faith anymore. I don't know about, and, and, and when credit rating agencies do what they did to Canada and, you know, lower the sovereign rating, these are the things that are, these are the things that raise red flags and tell you that inflation is not necessarily going to increase, but that bond yields are. And if you have a low growth environment, with rising bond yields, with rising inflation at the same time, that's called stagflation. And it is the worst of any kind of thing that ends with inflation because you, you, you have your paycheck, your paycheck's covering less, your borrowing costs are going up, and at the same time, there's really low growth. It's, it's the worst of all worlds. Yeah, and your and your income isn't growing either. Right, exactly. That's the that's the stag part. That is the stagnancy in the economy in front of your dollars not going as far. When you talk about the rating agencies, how much of the US sovereign credit rating do you think is based on reality and how much of it is based on this confidence, global confidence? I mean, how in the pocket of the U.S. are the rating agencies. What's the realistic likelihood that they do what they did to Canada? Well, um, you know what? That's irrelevant. <laughs> well, it's relevant to me. Well, it, it is and it isn't. I mean, it, it, it could be scary, but we forget that the debt of the United States was, was downgraded a few summers ago. And... You know, the rest of the world kind of yawned. They're like, well, right. is it going to be the yen? No. Is it going to be the euro? No. Is it going to be the yuan? Hell no. So they're like, well, I guess we're stuck with it. So, you know, un until we push the envelope so far that all the conspiracy theorists running around on my Twitter feed, by the way, there is this little button called unfollow. Unfollow. You can do that. But all my conspiracy theorists who think we're going to lose reserve currency status tomorrow, uh, it, it, does, it doesn't work like that. It doesn't. Do your history. Look back at reserve currency status declines. They're associated with this thing called a hot war. And we're not there yet. It goes currency war, trade war, hot war. So we're only two-thirds of the process into it. And the yuan is not an accepted means of exchange otherwise so we're not there yet what if they back the yuan with gold um look there are a lot of things that china can do in the coming years 
And, you know, people who all the hedge fund managers are like, it's going to blow up to kingdom come. I'm like, it's a controlled economy. They control the defaults. They control the banking system. They control the stimulus. And by the way, their stimulus dollars builds things. Our stimulus dollars is pissed into the wind and is not productive. Right. So uh, they're playing the long game. The Chinese are playing the long game. And if they were to do something like that, and they said just a few weeks ago, they put out an advisory that said, we're going to reduce our treasury holdings to $800 billion because of our concern for the profligacy of the U.S. government spending money like drunk sailors. Right. Um, but they said that they could take it below $800,000 in the event of a military conflict. And, you know, there I am on Twitter, like, McFly, McFly, hello? <laughs> hello? I'm, I, I'm not going to tweet it out twice. I'm not a loser. But can somebody read this? Because this is serious, people. But are they going to do it? Probably not. But they have been reducing the duration. They've been reducing the maturities of their treasury holdings such that they're preparing the their portfolio of treasuries to be more liquid in the event they want to have a nuclear option. So they're buying themselves flexibility. Yeah, and the Chinese don't just put out headlines for no reason. You know, they, they're very careful about the things that they say. And it may not be an overnight thing, but they're definitely telegraphing something with that. Even if it's just something, you know, they're gently trying to telegraph something. But they, uh, they carefully uh, put their message out, I would say. Would you agree with that? Yes, I would agree that it is extremely, um, everything they say is scripted. Everything they say is with purpose. Right. And they think that everything we say is hot air. Right. A lot of it is. <laughs> well, it's like, you know, we're not going to allow any of these things for TikTok. Oh, wait, take it back. Yes, we will. So yeah. it's. I don't even know why we're messing around with that. You know, it's just. The... Oh, it's headlines. It's headlines. Yeah, no, but I mean, the fact that they're going to uh, continue to allow the data to be stored in China and ByteDance is still going to have access to everything, you know, defeats the purpose of putting all this scrutiny on it. I mean, I think... You're not, you're not supposed to mention that. You're never supposed to mention inconvenient truths. It takes away from the narrative. Well, the inconvenient truth is you're giving, you know, I, as I'm sure we all kind of are involuntarily with plenty of our electronics and other things, and it's bad enough we got Hikvision cameras at the fucking Pentagon, and we've got... Uh, you know, Huawei routers all over the country, but you're giving the Chinese every, I don't know what you need to sign up for TikTok because I don't have it, but all of that stuff, you're just sending it. I mean, it's data, right? Everything is data. And that's the big, like LinkedIn got bought out because of its data. You know, data is the commodity. Now hedge funds pay for data. They want user data. They want people's data. And here are an entire generation of Americans just forking it over to China 
just giving it to them. It's just, you know, sitting on a server over there somewhere. And they're and to make things better, they're fucking dancing while they're doing it, you know? <laughs> they're fucking doing the soldier boy. Crank that. Like, hey, crank that. Take my data. Hey, crank that. Take my fucking videos of me. Hey, crank that. Take my social security number. It's like, Jesus Christ, talk about the perfect crime. Well, and, and that's the thing. People are focused on soybeans i'm like can we move the discussion to 5g and ai please yeah what year is it 1600 (laughs) i'm like you've got to be kidding me people why are we not focused on the fact that they are creating the next generation of technology and that they're going to use it as they see fit these you know if you sat and looked at it from that through that prism you would be like, well, you know, this is this is this is they're planning conflict. That's what they're doing. They're they're planning for conflict in the future, because that's what you do when you when you try and and, and get at espionage. And and yet we don't we don't understand. You know, I I think that I can't even say the word silver lining and associate it with COVID because I happen to personally know people who have gone to hell and back with this thing. Um, but I, I think that if we have had a, a, a benefit out, out, outgrowth, it's that other countries are, have much greater scrutiny of China than they did before. Yeah. I mean, Australia, Australia, for God's sake, yeah. it's in its first recession in 30 years and it sells the bulk of its natural resources. And I mean, the vast majority of its natural resources to China and, you know, it's got, it relies all those cranes in. I was in, I was in Australia for a speech last year. All the cranes in Melbourne and Sydney, that's Chinese investors, and for them to come out and that government to come out and say we want to lead an independent inquiry into the in, into the source of of COVID, and come out in, in the World Health Organization and be joined by 120 other countries, that was a big deal. It was because. Before that, you didn't have the UK stressing out about Huawei, but now you do. So, you know, if if there's going to be greater scrutiny going forward of what was China's quietly taking over the future of our information, it's not as quiet as it once was. Yeah, and I think you make a good point earlier about it being the long game, right? It's a long con. It really is. It's, you know, espionage isn't something like, hey, we're going to send our 50 best spies tonight and have them get everything, try to break into the Pentagon. You know, it's a decades-long task if you want to do it effectively, and it's exceptionally methodical. And people don't really seem to understand that this article came out yesterday. It feels like every couple weeks now we see an article... So and so spy was working for China. There was there was the Harvard professor that was funneling information to them. Two days ago, an article came out: New York police, uh, New York City police officer charged with acting as an agent for China discouraged a local Tibetan community center from engaging in pro-Tibet activities before they cut ties with him. He was a naturalized American citizen from Tibet, and he was arrested in connection with being an asset to the Chinese government since 2018. And he was in the uh, New York Police Department, you know? And then the question is, okay, like, how many of those people are out there? 
and and that's the problem. We don't know. We're in the dark. Because you know we're only catching a fraction. Right. right. You know oh, 100%. Fact. Yep, 100%. So, but the fact that it's occurring at all, I mean, look, it doesn't matter who wins the election because no, I don't think any politician for generations to come is going to be able to be soft on China. I, I don't see it happening. Well, I do. I mean, you don't, you don't see... You you wouldn't see Biden being softer on China than than Trump. Well, I, I don't think I don't think he would continue the trade war, which is something of a distraction. <clears throat> but I would think that our intelligence community has learned enough that that any president who's briefed on the current situation would, I mean, hopefully not be soft on China, because I mean. It is that, you know, you are the commander in chief. So national security is, it's part of the job description. And that's what this has come to. Yeah. In the first couple of weeks we learned about the coronavirus, Nancy Pelosi was encouraging people to go to Chinatown because she thought it was racist to worry about the virus. Go to Chinatown. Remember she was parading around San Francisco's Chinatown. Like, yeah. How's that political correctness treating you? (laughs) But that's like, that's worrisome. Not, you know, that, look, I'll give her a pass because nobody really knew how bad it was back then. And and that's fine. But that kind of attitude, like a laissez-faire kind of attitude with China, just is not a good idea. And and nor can it ever be again, is my point. So shame on us if... If that ever happens again, and look, there are there are economic ramifications to this. You know, the Chinese have spent a lot of money um, traveling to the United States. The Chinese have spent a lot of money sending their kids to colleges here. Yeah. Um, so, th- you know, this is not it, it's not a free pass for the economy, but yet the stakes are high enough that I think we should just be very very cautious going forward. And they were the first in the know. I was dating a woman who was a graduate student at Penn when this whole thing went down. And she told me in like January or uh, February that she uh, saw all the Asian people were all wearing masks first at Penn, you know, which is an Ivy League school. So a lot of a lot of foreigners, not just from Asia, but from other places also, too. And she said, yeah, you know, back in January, I think I had called her and just said hey you know you may want to pick up a couple of things whatever when i was calling my parents she said yeah all the all the uh, all the asian students are already wearing masks and this was back in january and i was like oh all right you know they're in the know you know that the word coming from the word coming from china is not you know and a lot of them had gone home for the break had gone home for thanksgiving had gone home for christmas and you know, that's why I've always been saying I think this thing was so much more widespread way earlier than than we thought it was. Well, and and look, you look to Italy, and there was a there was a very enclosed China community around Milan, and it was weeks plural after they reopened that economy, and they still wouldn't come out of their houses. Yeah. So, I mean, whatever whatever it is that we will never know, and we will never ever know. I mean, when I see, you have to put it in the back of your mind because if you see the COVID statistics, 
it kind of makes your blood boil because we'll never know what they really are. So the, the world scientists will never be privy to how it started and what its immediate damage was because the, the Chinese will never tell us. Right. That's correct. And, and they, um, and they lied to us from the get go. I think it's obvious, right? Well, yeah, they had a, I mean, the, the first documented case in Wuhan was November the 17th and, but they had, they, they had a trade deal to sign on, on January the 15th. So they, they, they had reason to keep it hush hush. And of course the trade deal has a, a an out clause in the event of, you know, an act of God, conveniently. Yeah. What if this was an act of man? You know, I, I don't think I don't think we'll ever know. Again, I, and that's the shame of it. And if you talk to medical doctors, you know, they say it starts out like something that attacks the lungs. It starts out like a regular coronavirus, and then, it, you know. In certain cases, it mutates into into a virus that acts a lot more like AIDS. You know, like well, that's that's comforting because that you know that that occurs in nature. It does not. Right. Yeah, and there's been several studies that have said this has to be man-made just because of the way that it's put together. That it's not naturally occurring. Um, you know, that's widely refuted as the uh, by the mainstream by the people that are creating the. Uh, the the end-all be-all, at least if you're on Facebook or Twitter and you want to talk about it, that narrative, those people haven't really adopted it. I mean, but for me, what did I need to hear? I needed to hear, okay, well, it came from Wuhan, and then, you know, back in January, February, the headline was it came out of the wet market. By the way, the wet market is 10 miles from the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which is this level four, you know, biological uh, lab where they study these viruses. And I'm like, okay, fucking that's all I need to hear, right? I've been around long enough to know that if it's, you know, there are no real coincidences like that, right? No, I don't believe in coincidence in, in any situation. So, but but again, I think at this point, we, we really do have to move on. And, you know, I, I've been extremely unpopular on Twitter and everywhere. I'm extremely unpopular. I'm like, just shut up and put on a mask. It doesn't have, it doesn't have shit to do with your liberty. It has to, it has to do with being a decent human being. And why do you have to have the study that proves with a hundred percent veracity that masks work or don't work? You know, you're, you're, you're putting small businesses out of business. If, you know, if the people who believe in masks are going to be, you know, hovering in their houses and afraid to come out, they're not going to spend their money. So more people are going to lose their jobs. So why don't you look at it like that? And move on, but you know that 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 didn't happen. I mean, it was fascinating, fascinating to see after the Sturgis, um, after the Sturgis motorcycle rally uh, in South Dakota, they actually traced all of the mobile phones that were there back to their home of origins, and then they followed the coronavirus. The coronavirus case is exploding. And, you know, the people are walking around and they've got shirts that say F masks on them and they're all proud. And I'm like, it's just who had to make this thing political in the first place? Right. It didn't have to be this way. It just didn't. I mean, all you need to know is that Carrie Lam, who I don't think she really likes the people of Hong Kong. All you need to know is that when it when news initially broke, she told the people in Hong Kong, not don't wear masks you don't need to do not wear masks that's all you need to know it's like move on 
somebody who has a vested interest in hurting the people she represents says, don't wear masks. And what do the people in Hong Kong do? They got a grassroots effort going and social media, and they all wore masks. They're like, okay, she says not to, that's problematic. Maybe we should. Yeah, well, it wasn't just her that said don't wear masks. It was the World Health Organization and it was the Centers for Disease Control. Oh, no, no. Look, the 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 optics and the way this thing was handled initially is just, it's awful. It, it, it was a complete disaster. But by the same token, you know, I, I get so offended when people say, they told us not to wear masks. And I'm, and I'm like, okay, we're humans. At last check, we're fallible. If, if evidence comes in post facto that shows that it, you know, after all, after all, it was a good idea, or maybe we've got, you know, maybe we've got vested interests. Maybe we want it to, uh, maybe we want it to withhold them for the medical community. Who knows? So, but if evidence comes in at last check, human beings can change their mind and move on. That's why we have intelligence. Anyways. Yeah, when the facts change, you change your mind, right? Who said that? That's what you're supposed to do. I mean, <laughs> look, look, we could have a stimulus package next week. And, and you know, that, that would change the narrative. It, it, it really would. You, you could have, look, it's September the 30th is, October the 1st is, is next week. So you could have Nancy and, and, and Steve working 48 hours for the next few days and come up with a stimulus plan and get it out there before the airline layoffs yeah and and you know have and 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 that's the buzz right now and that's why that's why the stock market is is up you might see the stock market rip higher but the fact of the matter is again it would be yet another unproductive stimulus bill that doesn't build anything correct and all that means is Check back in a few months for the next stimulus bill. <laughs> that's, all, that's it. That's all we're doing. It, we're perpetuating a cycle. Oh, yeah. And it's a cycle that we have we have to perpetuate with more gusto every time we go after it, too, to make an impact, which is really the... Well, they're, they're saying two and a half trillion. So, you know, I mean, this, 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 this will be... I mean, I, I don't know how gifted Mitch McConnell is, but this will be the test of his career. <laughs> is Because you just know Trump's going to announce the Supreme Court nominee ASAP. I think he just did, actually, when we started the interview. I saw the headline come across. Well, okay, there you go. <clears throat> or if he didn't so, announce it, the, a news organization the, did. On the day of the funeral? Oh, gosh. I'm not sure. I saw it break, though, right when we first started talking. Wow. Well, you know, the, look, this is, I'm, I'm trying to tell my kids, <laughs> I'm trying to convey, try and convey to a teenager, a 12 going on 13, my twins, trying to convey to them that they're witnessing history is pretty difficult. Right. They're like, uh, wait, can I spend $10 on the Xbox? I'm like, did you hear me? I said you're witnessing history here. This is amazing. There's, you know, there's there's riots in the streets. This is worse than the late 60s. We've got, you know, we've got the potential to have a stacked Supreme Court. This is this is amazing. And they're like, "Mom, you really got to get out more." Yeah, this is definitely yeah. there's definitely an underlying 
unease that has been in the air for, you know, since this whole thing started. I started feeling it in like December, January when the coronavirus headlines started. I remember I was in the car doing a Periscope and I just said, I have a very bad feeling. And that unease has ebbed and flowed a little bit, but it's always been there. And now heading into the election, it's bubbling up a little bit more, you know, given the other situation with the social unrest. And this is really, I mean, this this is a, on a years long scale, this is history. Like you're saying, this will be a period that's written about in history books. They'll, they'll clump these couple of years together or however long this lasts. And this is going to be the linchpin for something. I don't know what. Maybe, hopefully, Look, hopefully better times, but who the fuck knows? I, they, they better be better times. Or I, I, don't think, I don't think New Zealand can hold all of us. So, <laughs> I mean, but, you know, just, you know, I, the, the, the surreality of the headlines boggles the mind. You've got the head of Homeland Security testifying as to which extremist movement is has a higher kill rate right you're like are you kidding me i I mean this is we're living in extraordinary times and you know wall street has been talking for years about you know we have an we have an inequality issue in this country and there could be ramifications to it. I'm like, have you noticed the streets are on fire? Right. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just, you know, if you turn off CNBC for a minute and you turn on any other major news network, you're going to see that this inequality situation could bubble over one day. And I'm like, uh-huh. It sure could. Have you seen Chicago? Have you seen Portland? I mean, how much of the, how much of the social unrest do you, last time we talked was right around the time that all this stuff started. So I'm not sure we covered it like uh, too broadly, but I mean, how much of this unrest do you think is a result of the inequality created by the Fed? Because I think that's a much bigger catalyst than people think. I mean, George Floyd was the reason that people started to riot. Now the body cam footage is out and it's like, okay, it doesn't really appear to be any racially motivated factors in that. Not saying that, it was or it wasn't murder, but I'm just saying, well, it didn't really seem that race played much of a role, if any role, based on the evidence. So what are people still out rioting for after that? Um, well, there's, I mean, yeah, I mean, like, look, when, when, um, and you know, this is just, it is what it is. Uh, you know, I work, I worked hard on wall street. Uh, my husband worked hard. We, we both started working when we were very young. I've been working full time since I was 13 years old. Thank you very much. Which is hard to do when you're a student. So, I have a good life and I'm proud that I have a good life and I earned the good life and I, I'm able to live in, an, in a neighborhood where my children attend public schools that are good. I'm part of the 1% when it comes to public education. There are a million homeowners, a million homeowners out there in America who are not on forbearance and losing their homes to foreclosure because they can't read the headlines they don't know who to ask they don't realize that they were covered for 12 months and that it wasn't going to be a balloon payment in the end right they don't they've never even heard of the cares act and so it's it's the only reason i'm saying this is because it's deeper than the fed what started in the 70s and the 80s with teachers unions 
And the full degradation of public education was then exacerbated by the Federal Reserve. So when the riots hit Dallas, I promise there's a reason I'm telling you this story. When the riots hit Dallas, Texas, I had people on my internet, on, excuse me, on my Twitter feed say, rich bitch, I know where you live. I'm coming for your children. That is not racial. That is income inequality boiling over. Right. Yep. And and it's a problem. It's a huge problem. And the fact that we're not, you know, look, Germany in in the aftermath of the financial crisis, Germany doubled down on vocational training. And it said, well, you know what? We're going to have to give these people some skills because they're going to have to reinvent themselves. And we think it's okay to throw money at people and give them nothing such that we buy them a few months of having a roof over their head and food on the table, but we don't give them any way to help themselves. And we think it's okay. It's not okay. It's not okay to not educate every American. It's not acceptable. That's not what our founding fathers intended. And I can say this. I was born on Constitution Day. I kind of know it really well. So, you know, this income inequality thing is very real and it's justified. Their anger, the people who are riding in the streets, their anger is justified because they've been left behind. And the you know the other side, the 55% of Americans who own stocks, you know, Jay Powell himself was saying for a while there at the podium, I think somebody finally corrected him. He kept saying, we've got to help those people, those people, those people, those people. I mean, think about that. They're us. They're part of the I'm, – I'm, I'm as I'm, my, my roots were as blue-collar as they came. My grandfather came over in 1927 from Italy with, with polio and was quarantined in Ellis Island. The Army trained him during World War II. He was based in London to be an auto mechanic, and he came back and opened up DiMartino Sunoco on each side of the feeder road in East Haven, Connecticut. And then he was able to send his kids to college. And that's the American dream. But the, the American dream was accessible generations ago. Where is it now? And it's, it's, it's a huge issue. And you just got to open your eyes the last couple of months. Even if you want to just temporarily subscribe to the idea that the stimulus is the right idea and say, okay, it's good that the government's providing stimulus because they mandated the shutdown. Just open your eyes, right? What did the corporations get? They got trillions of dollars, trillions of dollars. The Fed is buying Apple bonds, Berkshire Hathaway bonds. Oh, and and the average... Happening. The average American family got, what, $1,200 when? Three months ago? Like, is that not the biggest fuck you in history? It is. And then you sit back and, you know, you have Mr. I can see your ass crack walk in your door, plumber, and you're like, you want how much money because it's a holiday to walk through my door and fix my toilet? And, and he's old. You know, he's, he's in his 50s. Yeah. And you're like, well, you know, supply, demand. If we had a few more plumbers, electricians, welders, the price to use them would go down, HVAC, 
and and that's what we can do. You know, there are there are practicable solutions, and our politicians cannot pull their heads out of their asses and look to the examples of other countries that have done it well and not squandered fiscal stimulus spending. But as far as the U.S. taxpayer is concerned, they're just going to piss it into the wind. Yeah, I think you're spot on. I know you have a hard stop here. I want to say thank you so much for taking an hour for me. And do me a favor. Let's pick this up again in like a couple of weeks at the latest and get another hour in because I got about 1,500 more questions I want to ask you. (laughs) Well, things are going to get really interesting here in the next few weeks leading up to the election. So, um, yeah, I'd I'd love to visit and I appreciate you respecting my hard stop and um, I enjoyed my Bud Light a lot. Yeah, let's circle back for another Bud Light after that first debate maybe and uh, and touch base, see how we feel about some things. Sounds great. All Look right. forward to it. Danielle, thanks so much. That was the one and only incredible Danielle DiMartino Booth. She's the best. It sucks we only had an hour today, but we're going to get another one in. I'm going to schedule that ASAP with her. She actually scheduled today's podcast around when she could have a drink that was what that's an actual text she sent me i'm like hey you want to talk soon she's like we got to do it at a time where i can drink some wine or have a beer i'm like hey i'm fine i'm fine with that you really seem to understand the ethos of the show (laughs) she'll be back on soon and i have other guests book fools enjoy your weekend i'm the fuck out of here everything's fucked in case you haven't noticed but at least just try to enjoy the weekend all right peace